It was a Thursday, March 10th, 1864, when the brand spanking new general-in-chief of all United States forces arrived at Brandy Station, Virginia, where Major General George Gordon Meade made his headquarters. Fully aware the most pressing military matter was for the Army of the Potomac to forcefully campaign, Lieutenant General U.S. Grant arrived from Washington City to do what he believed he had to do, find a new man to lead that Eastern Army. The Pennsylvanian Meade expected as much and opened their conversation by offering to uncomplainingly step down and serve in a subordinate role if Grant desired one of his own, perhaps a Westerner like Sherman. Instead, Meade's candor impressed Grant, and whatever the lieutenant general originally thought about the Army of the Potomac's commander, the two hit it off. They sensed they could work together. Up in Washington City, the 16th president of the United States felt certain that after three years of trial and bloody error, he finally had found his general. This is the story of his learning curve and role as the nation's top military official. This is the story of Abraham Lincoln as Commander-in-Chief. The last five letters of history spell story, and that's exactly how history should be taught. Numbers and dates have no soul. Such presentations fall flat, for history is alive and relevant. Welcome to Threads from the National Tapestry, stories from the American Civil War. This series will feature events and people from that period and will strive to make you feel as if you were there to show that history is indeed a story. It was around one in the morning, Tuesday, March 5th, 1861. Finally freed from the inaugural ball, the new president, Abraham Lincoln, stepped into his office for the first time. It was long and rectangular, and still reeked of cigar smoke from the last occupant, James Buchanan. In his last months, old Buck walked the corridors, wringing his hands and lamenting, I am the last President of the United States. Now, the office and the burden was Lincoln's. For the next four years, one month and ten days, a visitor was most likely to find the president in that office, usually in a gray duster with ink on fingers, kittens crawling in and out of his lap, mopping his unruly hair and forehead with a red handkerchief, and probably with a toe sticking through the hole of one sock. The 16th president seemed quite bohemian, most unusual for a chief executive. His voice was no baritone, but a high-pitched tenor, and delivered with a western twang. His office, this place as he called it, had a marble fireplace with brass fender and irons. In front of it was an upright desk with pigeonholes. There were two sofas, one fabric and one leather. Two gas jets illuminated the room through two heavy glass globes. There was a long oak table in the middle of the room. It was usually layered with manuals, books, and maps. His favorite map, 
featured the great battlefields of Europe, Waterloo and Sevastopol. These items may or may not have been cleared for the cabinet meetings held around that long oak table every Tuesday and Friday at noon. On those days, there was always much to discuss. For Abraham Lincoln, it all began the day after taking his oath of office on March 4th. Major Robert Anderson's dispatch had arrived from Fort Sumter. His food would run out in six weeks. A crisis thought far away now barged through the door. Welcome to the presidency and to fulfilling the role of chief executive, enforcer of the laws and protector of the Constitution, and also commander-in-chief at a time when the country and Republican democracy was most threatened. The 16th president was no stranger to the military. In fact, his interest in politics came by way of his military service. That started in New Salem, Illinois. It was back in 1832, and he was just 23, and had been unanimously elected captain of his militia company. The company had mustered because the Salk warrior Black Hawk had gathered warriors and sought to reclaim land east of the Mississippi. Lincoln's election was not a surprise, for he was a natural leader, a skilled wrestler at six foot four inches, most likely the tallest in the company, and probably the strongest. A Lieutenant Robert Anderson swore Lincoln and his militia company into military service. Like his officers during the Civil War, he, too, made mistakes. He fired his pistol near the camp boundary and could not control his men when they charged into where the hard liquor was stored. Each time, he was ordered to carry a large wooden sword everywhere he went. He re-enlisted twice, but never experienced actual combat. In fact, during his lone term in Congress, he reported to the Speaker of the House that despite the fact he had seen no fighting, he did have a good many bloody struggles with mosquitoes. And although never fainted from the loss of blood, he could truly say he was often very hungry. From the short stint in military service, he discovered he had and liked this inclination for leadership. He returned to New Salem and declared, I am determined to become a candidate for the next legislature. His militia years changed his life. Now, he was president of the United States and the head of its forces. Most chief executives enjoy a honeymoon when taking office. He did not. There were immediate, unprecedented problems and questions. For example, one issue. A well-known jurist asked and answered, what power does the federal government possess to bar northern arms manufacturers from selling their wares to seceding states? None. Of the six cabinet members who met with Lincoln, March 9th, only one thought Fort Sumter was worth fighting for. Undaunted, Lincoln announced Forts Sumter and Pickens, just off Pensacola, Florida, would be reinforced and resupplied. Decision made, he looked and sounded calm and confident. Decisions to be made? 
He tried to control events, but learned quickly they would control him. And they came quickly. Rain beat at his windows on the 12th of April. An early riser, he had a meeting with three delegates from Virginia. Their message was simple. The Old Dominion would remain loyal to the Union if the Union would leave slavery alone. There was a routine cabinet meeting at noon. The contested forts were not even mentioned. Meanwhile, the rain was heavy. So, too, were events. Around mid-afternoon, messengers topped with umbrellas were seen dashing between the War Department and the Executive Mansion. Almost all carried telegrams encased in small orange envelopes. Fort Sumter had been fired upon, and the Cabinet was divided in its response. Lincoln, however, felt no indecision. He thought the Confederate attack was on the flag— Therefore, he called for what the Militia Act of 1795 allowed him, 75,000 volunteers for 90 days. The most pressing concern was the Capitol's defense. And what would prominent Southerners in prominent positions do? Like United States Quartermaster General Joseph E. Johnston, Franklin Buchanan, who was in charge of the Washington Navy Yard, Lieutenant Colonel Robert E. Lee, just across the river, and Captain John Magruder, who commanded the elite 1st Artillery. In Richmond, Lincoln's counterpart, Jefferson Davis, called for privateers. Lincoln countered with plugging southern ports, although it was nothing more than a paper blockade and therefore illegal by international rules of war. A little before 9 on April 18th, he visited 476 militiamen from Pennsylvania who were first to arrive to offer defense for Washington City. They camped in the basement of the Capitol building, directly under the old House of Representatives. The president shook hands with everyone and wondered when others would come. Returning, he walked by the district arsenal, its iron gates unguarded and standing wide open. The troops Lincoln wanted had to come via Baltimore, and on the 21st, Baltimore Mayor George W. Brown told the president that across the South, the call for 75,000 was considered an act of war and a violation of constitutional rights. A stressed chief executive popped to his feet. I am not a learned man. I am not a learned man. He called for the troops only to defend the Capitol. But to address the building tension in slave state Maryland, Lincoln did agree to have troops move to Washington City via rail by way of Annapolis rather than Baltimore. At the cabinet meeting on the 21st, Lincoln wrestled with... Stick to the letter of the Constitution and see the Union destroyed? Or follow the spirit of the Constitution and do whatever was required to save the country? That day, there was another meeting with 16 Virginians and three Marylanders. His patience was wearing thin, and it snapped when one Marylander announced that his state could raise 75,000 men to keep Lincoln's 75,000 out. 
Lincoln snapped back. I presume there is room enough on your soil to bury 75,000? Later that day, more bad news. John Magruder resigned his United States Commission. In fact, 313 of 1098 regular officers did. As far as ability, maybe half of the most able departed. Washington City felt like an island. Dixie floated from pianos and citizens paraded down Pennsylvania Avenue proudly wearing secession cockades. The president wondered where were the troops. In the late afternoon, Lincoln would stand on the executive mansion's roof and with a spyglass scan the Potomac toward the Chesapeake. Benjamin Butler was on the way with the 8th Massachusetts, and a desperate Lincoln wired him to hold Annapolis at all costs. If the Maryland legislature tried to take the state out, Butler should resist even to the bombardment of their cities, and if all else failed, suspend the writ of habeas corpus. On the 25th of April, the 7th New York arrived. The next day, Butler's 8th Massachusetts and the 1st Rhode Island. By the end of the month, Lincoln had 10,000 troops. He also had taken the powers of the presidency to unprecedented levels. The writ of habeas corpus had been suspended between Washington City and Philadelphia. Disloyal publications had been banned from the mails, and a blockade of Confederate ports was in effect. On May the 3rd, a call went out from the president for 200,000-plus three-year volunteers. This done illegally without the approval of Congress. Although Maryland was under Lincoln's thumb, Virginia was not. And on May 23rd, its voters ratified its ordinance of secession. Lincoln ordered troops to Alexandria that very evening. One was Colonel Elmer Ellsworth, who had studied law in Lincoln's Springfield office. He was like a son. After breakfast of the 24th word reached the president that Ellsworth had been killed. Scheduled visitors found the president at his office window, staring blankly toward the Potomac. He turned to greet them, extended his hand, and found himself choking, Excuse me, I cannot speak, and burst into tears. Unable to sit still, Lincoln often visited his general-in-chief, Winfield Scott. More than likely, the general was found sitting in his full uniform with his feet in a bucket of ice to relieve his painful gout. To lift his massive 300-plus-pound frame, he would grab a large ring that dropped from a hook in the ceiling. Scott advised aggressive action down the Mississippi River and a defensive posture in the east. He was savvy, though both he and Lincoln knew that plan would take time to execute and therefore would create great criticism. As for what immediately transpired, Lincoln embraced Brigadier General Irvin McDowell's plan, essentially on to Richmond, the southern capital. To Lincoln's detriment throughout the war, he was obsessive in this objective. 
the summer of 1861, brought new concerns. One came from his own legislative branch, for on July the 4th, Congress convened at noon, and many were angry, resentful that he had not called them into special session earlier. He had prepared a 48-page paper for them. Amazingly, for the most part, they rubber-stamped his unprecedented actions already taken. Seventeen days later, McDowell led thousands of Elmer Ellsworths into battle. It was Sunday, July 21st, and Lincoln was troubled. He went to church that morning and spent most of the afternoon in the two-story War Department reading messages from the battlefield. Even as late as 5.30 p.m., the news from the battlefield had been positive. So Lincoln decided to take Mary on a carriage ride to the northern limits of the district. On the way, a lathered horse and sweating rider pounded after them. From Scott's parlor and later at the War Department, bad news rolled in. Union defeat at Bull Run. Sleep that night was impossible. Heavy, steady rain echoed the feelings of those in Washington City the next day. The president slept horribly that night, even though Congress made the reversal a rallying point. On the afternoon of the 22nd, the House and Senate gave authorization for $500 million and 500,000 men, far more than Lincoln had asked for. But they needed a leader. McDowell just would not do. Lincoln, as commander-in-chief, had to make a change. General-in-chief Scott wanted Brigadier General Ethan Allen Hitchcock, who had served capably with him in Mexico. The then-Secretary of War Simon Cameron vetoed that selection, for they had had an incident dating back to 1839. Scott then suggested bug-eyed, aloof, Major General Henry Halleck. Lincoln, however, went with someone who had tasted victory, though small, out in western Virginia. And as would be a Lincoln habit on occasion, he jumped the chain of command. He bypassed Scott and moved through Secretary of War Cameron. A call went out for Major General George B. McClellan. McClellan's start was solid. He took a defeated mob and made it look, act, and feel like an army. He believed military pressure should be exerted out west, but the main thrust would come in the east. This fed Lincoln's Richmond fixation. Scott was wary of McClellan, and relations between the two deteriorated quickly. It was painful for Lincoln to mediate, and yet... That would be the circumstance for the coming days. On August the 30th, a new dilemma. Abolitionist darling Major General John C. Fremont proclaimed that he would shoot Missouri traders taken prisoner and liberate the slaves of Missouri secessionists. Lincoln was horrified. Messages were immediately sent to reverse the potential political bomb that would land squarely within the border states. In one of those, Lincoln's native state of Kentucky, he believed the entire war hinged. The state declared itself neutral 
Yeah, Lincoln allowed Kentucky native future Brigadier General William Nelson to smuggle in 5,000 stands of arms into the state. Arms would also be sent into another pet area for the president's concern, East Tennessee. Lincoln gave a wide berth to Kentucky's neutrality until September the 3rd, when Confederate General Leonidas Polk blundered his way into seizing Columbus, Kentucky, which overlooked the Mississippi. Neutrality violated. Federal forces occupied Paducah September the 6th, and in that venture, Lincoln applauded the decisive action of one Brigadier General Ulysses S. Grant. The next month, the war again became personal. On the 21st of October, near Leesburg, Virginia, at a place known as Ball's Bluff, another federal attempt to push Confederate forces from the Potomac ended in disaster. Among the dead, Oregon Senator and Colonel Edward D. Baker. Lincoln's dearest friend. When McClellan passed the news to the president, he walked blindly from McClellan's headquarters, his beard swallowing up the tears. With both hands pressed to his chest, he could barely breathe, and he literally staggered. The defeat would have staggering ramifications as well, for Congress used the disaster to roll out its own agenda. The Joint Committee on the Conduct of the War was created, and two of its most powerful members were Ohio's Benjamin Wade and Zachariah Chandler of Michigan. The committee boldly asserted its military opinion, operations, and objectives of not only the executive branch, but also the war itself. Nothing like it had ever been done before. To illustrate... Senator Wade even tried in 1863 to launch a congressional drive to abolish West Point. With the committee's creation, Wade and others joined Chandler to visit the president. Their message? The war had bogged down. They also paid a call on George McClellan, and repeating the same message, the young Napoleon blamed everything on General-in-Chief Scott. Much to Lincoln's displeasure, the old warrior finally yielded to political pressure. He retired and took up residence near West Point. Rather than improve the situation, conditions deteriorated quickly between McClellan and his commander-in-chief. Two examples. One evening, Lincoln called on McClellan while he and David Dixon Porter discussed joint Army-Navy operations. When the president's presence was announced, McClellan snapped, let him wait. He has no business to know what is going on. And on November the 14th, the president, Secretary of State Seward, and Lincoln Secretary John Hay visited Dolly Madison's old home, which served as McClellan's residence and headquarters. The general was at a wedding, and the group waited in the parlor. One hour later, the three heard a house servant tell the general that the president was there. Rather than immediately greet his visitors, McClellan went upstairs. One half hour later, Lincoln asked the servant to remind the general that they were waiting. That servant returned with a message that McClellan had gone to bed. The general made his point. 
He did not want the president showing up before breakfast or after dinner, which Lincoln did do nearly every day. Yes, the site was not only his residence, but it was also his headquarters. No matter, after this, Lincoln rarely called again. Open disdain from his commanding general, and the same from a member of his cabinet, Secretary of War Simon Cameron. Early on, Cameron lost patience with, as he put it, Lincoln's temporizing attitude towards slavery and racial equality. Cameron had his own detractors as well. Although there was no evidence that would hold up in court, many thought him corrupt. And though suspect, he did have his moments. He was a strong supporter of the United States Sanitary Commission and did appoint Dorothea Dix, superintendent of female nurses, which made her the first woman to hold executive authority within the federal government. Still, the working relationship was not good. When word reached Capitol Hill that Cameron was going to resign, a radical Republican delegation visited Lincoln and wanted all seven members of his cabinet to step down as well. Lincoln refused. His new Mars was Edwin Stanton, the same man who had belittled the president before the war in a court case. Stanton had called him a damned ape. Critics piled on accusing Lincoln of selecting yet another Pennsylvanian. In place, he and Lincoln eventually ordered McClellan's army forward. It came in special war order number one. In the midst of this, another tragedy, this time within his own household. On February the 20th, 1862, his son Willie died of typhoid fever. When he passed, the president staggered into the office of personal secretary John Nicolay, collapsed in a chair, and wept. The war and his responsibilities did not go away, for on top of this, there was little peace within his military family. He and McClellan argued not only about invasion routes, but also about organization. As to the creation of Corps, Lincoln gave in to McClellan. However, Lincoln stripped McClellan of his general-in-chief status while leaving him still in charge of the Army of the Potomac. As to invasion routes, McClellan's generals voted down 8 to 4 Lincoln's suggested overland route to Richmond, so the president gave in to McClellan's peninsula campaign, if for no other reason the army would move somewhere, anywhere, from the turmoil, a valuable lesson. Lincoln realized that an army was an extension of its commander, and he sincerely believed the wrong general was moving an army towards the wrong fight. On all theaters, east and west, Lincoln demanded winter campaigns. And all had been unreceptive but one. Henry Halleck allowed one of his generals to actively campaign, and that officer was Brigadier General U.S. Grant. He and Flag Officer Andrew Foote, indeed, gave the Union its first major victories at Forts Henry and Donaldson in February of 1862. 
Union Generals Halleck, Don Carlos Buell, and McClellan, of course, all took credit for the operation. But Lincoln knew whom to reward. The same night that Grant captured Fort Donelson, the president sent Grant's name for promotion to Major General. Yet, Grant almost became a footnote when in early April topography rather than foresight allowed his army to survive the Confederate surprise at Shiloh. The butcher's bill for the strategic victory was great, and soon thereafter, Pennsylvania publisher Alexander K. McClure, in a two-hour discussion, tried to convince Lincoln that Grant was a liability. The president was tired. It was after midnight. And from a slumped chair, he finally fired back. I can't spare this man. He fights. Lincoln appreciated Grant's initiative. It matched his. Learning on the job, it should be noted that the president possessed an active mind. He held patent number 6469. It was for a machine that would lift boats over shoals. Lincoln liked to be around inventors, men with creative minds. He would have plenty of chances during the war. As a boy of seven, he poked a Kentucky rifle through a hole in his parents' cabin and killed a wild turkey. The incident robbed him of an interest in hunting, but not of shooting. One inventor thought he had Lincoln's ear. He had designed a rifle with two barrels set at diverging angles. He called it his cross-eyed gun. Most of the demonstrations took place down at the Navy Yard, and the president loved going there, experimenting with new weapons, and loved the fact no one pestered him there. Lincoln truly believed the future of rifles were breech loaders and eventually repeaters. He also believed in ironclads and encouraged their development. One development that finally became reality was McClellan's landing on the Virginia Peninsula. Lincoln visited that front in early May 1862, and it was there that he came into his own as commander-in-chief. He presided over meetings with generals and admirals, insisted on action, demanded cooperation, and offered not only policy, but solutions. Yet, McClellan's stride of a giant became the stride of a gnat, and many called for McClellan's removal, not only for his cautiousness, but because he was a Democrat and soft on slavery. Five cabinet members wanted him out, and the radical-leaning joint committee loathed him. Once Ben Wade engaged the president in a shouting match over the issue, Wade exploded, remove him, to which Lincoln answered, who should I put in his place? Anybody, Wade responded. Well, anybody will do for you, Wade, but I must have somebody. In truth, frustrated with McClellan's pace, Lincoln did ask Stanton to offer command to Ethan Allen Hitchcock once more, and Hitchcock refused. It was during this tense time Lincoln did make a mistake. 
to appease radicals who wanted John C. Fremont with substantial forces in western Virginia. Lincoln, against the advice of his Secretary of War and, by now, Major General Hitchcock, transferred 10,000 federal cavalrymen under Brigadier General Lewis Blinker from the head of the Shenandoah Valley to Fremont. The move backfired. On the same day, May 24th, the Army of the Potomac, now only seven miles from the Confederate capital and able to see the church spires of Richmond, Stonewall Jackson, and a small force numbering around 17,000 attacked Front Royal, some 60 miles west of Washington City. Lincoln saw opportunity to surround Jackson with three small federal armies, but his generals were too slow. By July, a new force under Robert E. Lee drove McClellan down the peninsula. Lincoln went down to Harrison's Landing on the James River July 8th, and upon his arrival was handed a dated letter from McClellan which blasted the administration. It announced Little Mac's opposition to the, as he put it, forcible abolition of slavery, warned of Lee's coming attacks, and labeled his army's condition as critical. Lincoln read the letter, put it in his pocket, removed his reading glasses, and all without a word. To an ally, Lincoln commented, sending men to McClellan is like shoveling fleas across a barn floor. Half of them never get there. Seeking counsel and help with military organization, the president brought Major General Henry Halleck East to serve as general-in-chief. However, it took only a short time to realize that Halleck was a bureaucrat. Lincoln was a thinker. Halleck was not. Though 47 years of age, Halleck acted 74. He enjoyed maneuver rather than combat. Lincoln thought him, as he put it, little more than a first-rate clerk. On August the 3rd, the president had Halleck order McClellan to evacuate the peninsula. It proved to be another strategic blunder. What if the army had been ordered south of the James for a move on Petersburg, and then west, then cutting off all rail communications with Richmond from the south? That plan would have to wait another two years and for a new general. It was about this time that the commander-in-chief was reintroduced to the realization that the war was not only about military matters. There were political and social ramifications. The Republican radicals wanted him to end slavery. Lincoln wanted a program of emancipation, but with compensation. England had done such in 1783 and again with its colonies in 1833. In March of 1862, Congress abolished slavery within the district and even allowed $100,000 to help those freed immigrate. Lincoln knew slavery was wrong, but doubted whether the federal government had the power to abolish it. Indeed, the Constitution protected the institution. Lincoln also worried about the sanction of attainder punishing families for a father's misdeeds, essentially robbing children of their inheritances. Harvard-educated William Whiting added Lincoln's thinking immensely here. 
He argued that the Constitution had to be interpreted by common sense and invoked hitherto unused powers to defend it. Whiting argued that if Lincoln demonstrated compelling military necessity for his action, that was enough to justify. Lincoln told Secretary of the Treasury Salmon Chase, I will violate the Constitution if necessary to save the Union. And I suspect, Chase, that our Constitution is going to have a rough time of it before we get done with this row. Whiting believed slavery or the Constitution, one, had to go. Interestingly, the jurist ended his written opinion with the line that government was by the people, for the people. Though Lincoln would act against slavery, he did not believe the two races could get along. He, after emancipation, favored colonization. He also doubted blacks would fight for their freedom. In August of 1862, he told a delegation of black leaders at the executive mansion, not a single man of your race is made equal to a single man of ours. Still, military necessity drove his personal values. On the ride to the funeral of Edwin Stanton's son, James, in July of that same year, 1862, he remarked, I have about come to the conclusion that we must free the slaves or be ourselves subdued. The time was coming. With Lee's invasion of the North in September of 62, Lincoln placed McClellan back in command of the Army of the Potomac. At a cabinet meeting the afternoon of the 2nd of September, Stanton handed the president a petition in which all six members present felt the Capitol was not safe in the hands of Little Mac. Lincoln commented, I feel about ready to hang myself. It would be before the same group that on the 22nd, five days after the Battle of Antietam, Lincoln announced his Emancipation Proclamation. Interestingly, his act allowed for emancipated compensation in the border states and for colonization. Two days later, he had the proclamation made General Order Number 139 and published in a small booklet that fit into a soldier's pocket. While the northern press and abolitionists were ecstatic, he as commander-in-chief, was concerned about how the common soldier would respond to his dramatic order. That was one of the reasons he chose to visit the Army of the Potomac at Sharpsburg in Maryland. While there, he felt no mutinous spirit about the proclamation and felt recharged about their fighting spirit. If only one would lead them. On October the 6th, Lincoln ordered McClellan to cross the Potomac and give battle to the enemy or drive him south. It was a time of concern. After the midterm elections on November the 3rd, five states who voted Lincoln two years earlier went Democratic. Not only powerful New York, but even his own Illinois. Five days later, Lincoln decided he had to make a change. Though the man he thought about had turned down command of the Army of the Potomac twice, Lincoln maneuvered Major General Ambrose Burnside into taking command. Wanting action, Lincoln was not sold on Burnside's plan to move on Fredericksburg, Virginia. 
and his warning to move quickly went belly up when Halleck forgot to request the pontoons Burnside needed to cross the Rappahannock River. The resulting battle on December the 13th was an unmitigated disaster. Governor Andrew Curtin of Pennsylvania visited Lincoln two days after the Battle of Fredericksburg. Lincoln, in bed due to the lateness of the hour, asked of the battlefield. Curtin told him that it was a slaughter pen. Lincoln rose from his bed and walked about the room in anguish, wringing his hands. What has God put me in this place for? And later he confessed, if there is a worse place than hell, I am in it. Another command change was needed, and it would go to conniving Major General Joseph Hooker. And Lincoln decided to visit him and his army in April of 1863. There, at Falmouth, Virginia, he and his son, Tad, were quite visible. The president was cheered everywhere he went. At one point, the two spotted two Confederate pickets across the Rappahannock, warming their hands by a fire. They watched an officer appear who took out his spyglass and looked at them. Lincoln had to smile when the officer, who obviously recognized him, made an elaborate bow. Before they departed, Lincoln had one final piece of advice for his new commander. I want to impress upon you, in the next fight, put in all of your men. As Lincoln left for Washington City, the Army cheered him. He said under his breath, Moraturi te salutum. We who are about to die salute you. As he made his way back, Hooker's boasting bothered him. When the telegram came May the 6th of yet another retreat after the Battle of Chancellorsville, the president thrust the telegram into the hand of a friend and in a voice so low, almost inaudible, he said, Read it. As the friend read it aloud, Lincoln's face filled with tears. My God! My God, what will the country say? What will the country say? Still, Hooker was allowed one more chance. As Lee moved northward again, Hooker wanted to move south on Richmond. Trade queens, if you will. The reply, an unusual one given Lincoln's obsession with Richmond, was that Lee's army is your objective. This message, its directive was never repeated again. Hooker balked. He would not do. Another change was in order. When Major General John J. Reynolds refused command, Lincoln ordered Major General George Gordon Meade to command the Army of the Potomac. On Meade from Pennsylvania, the president said, he will fight well on his own dunghill. Throughout all these decisions, there is no question that Lincoln relied heavily on acerbic Secretary of War Edwin Stanton. Impulsive, master of the snap answer, snap judgment, and cutting reply, Lincoln did not spin his homespun stories on Stanton. Once a committee received Lincoln's permission to take Western soldiers from the Eastern Front and return them to the West, one delegate went to the War Department to have the matter put into motion. 
and incredulous Stanton stared at the man and said, Did Lincoln give you an order of that kind? He did, sir. Then he is a damned fool. The dazed man returned to the executive mansion and reported the exchange. Did Stanton say I was a damned fool? He did, sir. Well, if Stanton said I was a damned fool, then I must be one, for he is nearly always right. Lincoln's greatest weapon as commander-in-chief was an intangible one. It was his will to engage, to fight, to see the job through. His biggest stumbling block as commander-in-chief, as we have mentioned, was his fixation on the southern capital, Richmond. That being said, he also fixated on the annihilation of the enemy. His second greatest obstacle was the need to forge unity of command and action. For the first three years, the war was fought piecemeal. Though he had a rough start, Lincoln became a capable civilian commander. He understood logistics, appreciated staff work, training, knew the value of morale and discipline. He possessed a good mental picture of the railroads and how they were run, and he came to judge the strength of his armies not by their numbers, but by their commanders. He did not necessarily need a better strategy, but better officers in command. And that's what he hoped for in Meade. For the three days of Gettysburg, Lincoln spent most of his time in the telegraph office. So focused that he delayed for 24 hours the sending of a message to tell his son Robert that Mary Todd was okay, despite being seriously injured when one of the horses that pulled her carriage bolted and threw her violently to the road. Relief in Meade's victory at Gettysburg quickly turned into concern. He feared Meade would waste the victory, and when he learned Lee had escaped back into Virginia, Lincoln went to his desk and wept. To a recuperating Major General Daniel Sickles, he called the missed opportunity the greatest disaster of the war. Another disaster then came from an unexpected quarter the streets of New York City. The draft riots, the worst riots in the history of this country, came only two weeks later. Over 100 died in three days of rioting. The issues? Race and conscription. Lincoln's call for a draft in the spring of 1863 was without precedent in American or British law. Lincoln and his cabinet feared the issue would go to a court and would be struck down. And constitutionally, what of another issue, the suspension of habeas corpus? Until Lincoln, Congress followed Parliament's precedent. Those legislative bodies could only suspend the precious right. Lincoln's action, first done two weeks after the attack on Fort Sumter, rejected 600 years of legal development. Within a month, Chief Justice Roger B. Tawney, sitting in a federal court in Maryland, not on the Supreme Court bench, ruled the action unconstitutional. Lincoln, like Andrew Jackson of old, ignored it. 
Another theoretical question. What then if early on the federal government had thrown into prison the likes of Joseph E. Johnston, Franklin Buchanan, or even Robert E. Lee before they had passed into Confederate service? As to the suspension of the writ, Congress finally covered the president's action in March of 1863. And yet, there was censorship of private mail and telegrams, and pro-secession newspapers were shut down. And while all these constitutional dilemmas festered, the war dragged on. In September of 1863, Lincoln thought the Confederate victory at Chickamauga was not necessarily a major setback, but he was very concerned about Chattanooga and eastern Tennessee. Grant's victory at Chattanooga reached Washington City November the 26th. Ironically, it was the day Lincoln had set aside for the first national celebration of Thanksgiving. Too sick from very alloy to truly celebrate, Lincoln quite honestly blew the victory. Rather than order the pursuit of the Confederate Army into northwestern Georgia, Lincoln ordered elements of Grant's victorious army to relieve Knoxville, Tennessee. That drive, Sherman's, was ill-spent. A golden opportunity to punish Braxton Bragg's Confederate army and perhaps drive on Atlanta was missed. Lincoln's chessboard knight, U.S. Grant, characteristically saw the victory at Chattanooga as the beginning of a new chapter in the grand strategy of winning the war. Recalling when the enemy was allowed to escape from Shiloh while federal superiors pondered the next move, Grant described his plans on November the 29th to an investigating agent for the War Department, Charles A. Dana. The Union Major General knew an immediate drive on Atlanta was impossible. Six months of accumulated supplies for men and animals were needed in Chattanooga before a concentrated push could be made, and the gathering of those supplies would take time. Instead, Grant wanted an offensive against Mobile and the interior of Alabama. He saw this move as more logical after victory in Tennessee. He had come to realize that final victory depended on crowding a beaten foe without letting up. In short, use the vastly superior power of the North to apply unrelenting pressure on an enemy that simply could not resist. As Grant so simply put it, the enemy have not got army enough. To offer diversion to that planned move, Grant informed Sherman that once Tennessee was free of James Longstreet's Confederate force near Knoxville, a cavalry expedition of some 1,200 to 1,500 men was to raid southeast into and through South Carolina. Living off the land, it was to burn Confederate supply depots, take all good horses, avoid fighting if possible, and effectively disrupt not only communications between Virginia and the Confederacy's interior, but affect Lee's military moves in Virginia. Although this never took place, it was essentially what Sherman did with infantry in his march to the sea. On December the 21st, Dana wrote Grant from Washington City that, save for anxiety over Longstreet, the Alabama offensive would be approved. Then came word that the administration's Red River campaign under Major General Nathaniel Banks trumped a push on Mobile. 
Disappointed, Grant stuck to his guns. Far from looking to the Trans-Mississippi like his commander-in-chief, he looked east. He wrote Major General George Thomas that once supplied effectively, Atlanta, Montgomery, and Mobile could and should be targets. He even went as far as to suggest what the Eastern armies should do to cooperate. Grant recommended that no more offensive should be aimed at Richmond. Instead, 60,000 Federals should move from New Bern or Suffolk, Virginia. Favoring the latter, that army would move on Raleigh, North Carolina, keeping clear communication with New Bern and maybe even Wilmington. With the back door thrown open to Richmond, the immediate effect would be that Lee would have to evacuate Virginia, and a secondary effect would be the end of Confederate presence in East Tennessee. Yet, Mr. Lincoln held to his belief that the Red River campaign was paramount, so all of Grant's strategizing was nothing more than daydreaming. No matter, Grant's thinking took on dimensions that had not been realistically discussed before. The Trans-Mississippi and Virginia theaters were less vital than thought before. The Confederacy could only win by making war on a continental scale. And if Atlanta or the interior of North Carolina were in federal hands, the Confederacy simply could not fight that way. Richmond would die on the vine. The war, in Grant's mind, would be won south and west of Richmond, and he wanted permission to get on with it. All the more interesting is Grant's motivation for all this planning. Early on, he advocated these plans on his own, but suddenly he was asked his military analysis at the direct and specific request of General-in-Chief Halleck. Halleck wanted his ear because change was in the wind. On December the 9th, the New York Herald reported, It is proposed in Congress to revive the office of Lieutenant General. The great Union victory at Chattanooga helped to stoke that movement. And there was one in Washington that struck the match. Grant's war-long congressional sponsor, Elihu B. Washburn, submitted a bill to revive the rank once held by George Washington. Lincoln did not urge its passage, and quite honestly had questions about the ambition of the meteoric general. Lincoln spoke to Congressman Washburn and said, About all I know of Grant, I have got from you. I have never seen him. Who else besides you knows anything about Grant? Washburn admitted he himself did not know that much, but an old-time friend of Grant's did. That man was U.S. Marshal in Chicago, J. Russell Jones. A message was immediately sent for him to meet with Lincoln in Washington City, and with him, Jones brought along something that would have great interest to the commander-in-chief. It was a letter from Grant to Jones, which he, incredibly, had picked up as he made his way to the railway station to travel to Washington. At eight one evening, he and the president met alone in his study, and after chit-chat, Jones correctly deduced why he was there and produced Grant's letter. In it, Grant wrote, I'm receiving a great deal of notice, but it soon finds its way into the wastebasket. 
I already have a pretty big job on my hands, and my only ambition is to see this rebellion suppressed. Nothing can induce me to think of being a presidential candidate, particularly so long as there is a possibility of having Mr. Lincoln reelected. To that revelation, Lincoln responded, My son, you will never know how gratifying that is to me. No man knows when the presidential grub gets to gnawing at him just how deep it will get until he had tried it, and I didn't know but what there was one gnawing at Grant. The measure that passed Congress made it through the body with votes to spare, but it did not go through unopposed. Pennsylvania Congressman Thaddeus Stevens opposed it with saints are not canonized until after death. Recently resigned Brigadier General James A. Garfield, a future U.S. president, took a similar line. Grant knew about the progress of the bill, but had no earthly idea how it would change his life. He assumed that even after promotion, he would remain in the West and maintain his headquarters at Nashville. On Monday, February the 29th, 1864, the president approved the Congressional Act, and the rank of lieutenant general was revived. On Thursday, March the 3rd, 1864, Grant received word from Halleck that he was to report personally to Washington City. In essence, the United States Congress and the commander-in-chief now officially served legislative notice that as Lieutenant General U.S. Grant was to be the boss. All political scheming by anxious generals was over. The U.S. government staked everything on the bet that the little cigar-chewing, rumpled man from Galena, Illinois, was going to win the war. That man, who was now down to 135 pounds, never seemed to know how to make an entrance and he came to the capital city like an unsung job hunter from the outlying reaches. He arrived late in the afternoon of Tuesday, March 8th, and was accompanied by his 13-year-old son, Fred. The administration had sent delegates to officially meet his train, but somehow the arrangements fell through and the future general-in-chief was met by no one. At Willard's Hotel, he arrived unattended, travel-stained and wrinkled. Wearing a plain linen duster over most of his uniform, a board registration clerk looked at him and thought he might have a room on the top floor. Grant was fine with that and signed the register. Then the clerk swung the book around to write down the room number and he saw U.S. Grant and Son, Galena, Illinois. The clerk fell all over himself. Suddenly alive, he quickly remembered there was a fine room, a bridal suite, on the second floor. He rushed from behind the desk to personally carry the general's bag upstairs. Grant and his son went to the room, freshened up, then came downstairs for dinner. For a few minutes, all was quiet. Then people began to look, then look again, and the whispering multiplied more and more. The room began to buzz. Occasionally there could be heard, there's Grant. And finally some citizen stood up, hammered on his table with a knife until he had everyone's attention and called out that he had the honor to announce that General Grant was in their midst. 
Diners scrambled to their feet. Rhythmic shouts of Grant, Grant, Grant went up and three cheers were called for and that was promptly given. The man from Galena rose, fumbled with his napkin, bowed to all points of the compass and then sat down to try and finish his dinner. After he and his son returned to their room, a political person showed up to escort the general to the executive mansion, for there was a presidential reception that evening. Outside, it was wet and raw, but word that Grant might be there meant the reception was overflowing with the curious. When Grant was ushered into the blue room, the crowd parted like the Red Sea. At the far end of the lane created, there was another Westerner, all six foot four of him, wearing a collar one size too big and a necktie rather broad and awkwardly tied. Mr. Lincoln stepped forward with hand outstretched and a broad smile, and when they shook hands, the commander-in-chief's three-year search for a general ended. Towering above him, By a good eight inches, the president vigorously shook Grant's hand, and he bubbled. Why, here you are, General Grant. Well, this is a great pleasure, I assure you. And then Secretary of State Seward escorted the general to meet Mrs. Lincoln, and a few minutes later, Grant was led to the East Room, where most of the crowd congregated. When he entered, the room fairly hummed with electricity. So much so that to be seen, Grant was asked to stand on a sofa. One observer wrote, For once at least, the President of the United States was not the chief figure in the room. The little, scared-looking man who stood on a crimson-covered sofa was the idol of the hour. At some point, Mr. Lincoln explained that Grant would have to return the next day for the formal presentation of his commission as lieutenant general. That next day, Wednesday the 9th, at about one in the afternoon and before the entire cabinet, Ulysses S. Grant became the first lieutenant general since George Washington. With the rank and title of general-in-chief, Ulysses S. Grant commanded every man in a blue uniform, some 662,000 men, of which around 533,000 were combat-ready. As to the former general-in-chief, Major General Henry Halleck, rather than dismiss him, Grant kept him on as chief of staff, in effect, to remain in Washington City and to serve, as Lincoln put it earlier, a first-rate clerk. The promotion and title were quite the buzz, and someone asked Lincoln his opinion. The president replied, The only evidence you have that he's in any place is that he makes things get. Yes, the air was electric with anticipation, but there were detractors, and not only about Grant, but about the commander-in-chief who promoted him. On Grant, some believed him to supposedly be a Democrat, and didn't his in-laws own slaves? And why attack Lincoln? Well, simply because he was the president, And Americans have long done just that. Ohio Senator Benjamin Wade was one. In fact, eight months earlier during the Vicksburg campaign, Wade had commented negatively about Grant to the president. He is doing nothing. 
Lincoln mused aloud, I think I am about the only friend he has got. By the way, Mr. Wade, that reminds me of a story. It was then that Wade exploded. Bother your story, Mr. President. That is the way it is with you, sir. It is all story, story. You are the father of every military blunder that has been made during the war. You are on the road to hell, sir, with this government, and you are not a mile off this minute. And Lincoln shot back. That is just about the distance to the Capitol, isn't it? Lincoln liked Grant's determination. And interestingly enough, Grant brought to the strategic table much of the strategic elements as the old-aged Winfield Scott had professed four years earlier. The Anaconda Plan. Advance the armies in the West and hold strategically in the East. If all armies are employed, it will stretch the shrinking resources of the Confederacy. Lincoln linked that concept to, oh yes, I see that. As we say out west, if a man can't scan, he must hold a leg while someone else does. Preparing his military theories for application, Grant moved to join Meade's army down at Brandy Station, Virginia. The spring of 1864 was coming. For Lincoln, in the fourth year of his presidency, his routine had become quite predictable. Up at six to read reports or write letters, speeches, and proclamations for two hours. Then, a short, brisk walk. Breakfast was at 8.30. At nine, visitors had access to the president. Lunch was spartan, as Lincoln used food more for fuel than anything epicurean. The midday meal might be an apple and a glass of milk. In the late afternoon, he sent for his carriage to take a ride with the First Lady. Dinner would more than likely be another sparse affair, a chicken leg and water. The coming spring tested that routine and Mr. Lincoln's fortitude as commander-in-chief. When he received word of the Union losses after the two Titans, Lee and Grant, first met, the two-day bloodbath that was the Battle of the Wilderness, the president was distraught. My God, my God, 20,000 souls sent to their final account in one day. I cannot bear it. Upon hearing that, a New York Tribune reporter, Henry Wing, had just returned from the carnage, and Lincoln received him. The reporter gave his account and also carried a personal message for the commander-in-chief from Grant himself. It read simply, Whatever happens, there will be no turning back. Lincoln was so moved by the message that he embraced the surprised reporter and kissed him on the cheek. Still, the losses in May and early June gave ammunition to Benjamin Wade and others who wanted Grant's removal. Even his wife, Mary Todd, came to referring to Grant as the Butcher. Despite all the casualties in the Overland Campaign, Lincoln, as commander-in-chief, stood by his man, his general. And upon learning that the Army of the Potomac had crossed the James River to attempt the capture of Petersburg in June of 1864, Lincoln commented, I begin to see it. You will succeed. God bless you all. 
Now, dark days still hovered. There was the crucial matter of re-election, which the Union victories at Mobile Bay, Atlanta, and Cedar Creek in the Shenandoah finally assured. In the November 1864 election, Lincoln won 55% of 4.2 million votes that were cast. The soldier vote cost him only one state. It was his native Kentucky, which still had not forgiven him for the Emancipation Proclamation. With the end almost in sight, Congress adjourned March the 3rd, 1865. Stanton reminded the president that, true, the war was winding down, but who would dictate the peace? Secretary of War emphasized that Lincoln, as president and commander-in-chief, must guide how the war should be closed and what should happen when it was time for reunification. That message was conveyed in Lincoln's second inaugural address, the shortest on record. With malice toward none, with charity for all. His first administration had been all about finding order. His second, to find justice. And that message was made clear to Grant and Sherman. I want submission and no more bloodshed. I want no one punished. Treat them liberally all round. As the president put it, let them up easy. He had no desire to plunge the South into political anarchy after the war, but he did feel change was necessary. On April the 11th, Edwin Stanton approached the president and presented him a letter of resignation reminding him that the agreement had been that he would stay on until the conflict ended. There in front of him, Lincoln tore up the letter and embraced him. The cataclysmic journey had been similar for both the nation and for Lincoln. Both had been severely tested, but the Union was preserved and slavery had been struck down. That night of the 11th, the President and Commander-in-Chief spoke to a cheering crowd. It was not a victory speech. It was somber, reflective, strangely muted. He had proven himself a worthy commander-in-chief. He had won the war. Now he was preparing himself and the nation for an uncertain future, one he would lead as a civilian president. Some thought the speech disappointing. One of the crowd shook with anger and reportedly blurted, that is the last speech he will ever make. And so it would be. Three evenings later, another civilian president would have to win the peace for that agitated actor, John Wilkes Booth, made good his promise. For some time now, he and his role in history have been vilified. In most circles, he is believed a national pariah, a national persona non grata. But that man firmly believed himself a patriot, indeed, an American. He thought the Confederacy would save the America he knew and he cherished. His commitment to his short-lived country was total, just as complete as Abraham Lincoln's. 
In a strange way, both were assassinated. Lincoln physically, and he in character. Next time we gather, the story of the President of the Confederate States of America, Jefferson Davis. This is Fred Kiger. Thank you for listening. This podcast is sponsored by Bob Grasser, Raleigh Civil War Roundtable's editor of the Knapsack Newsletter and the Roundtable's webmaster at raleighcwrt.org. That's raleighcwrt.org.